Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Centerburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Centerburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, three weeks ago, we started a short series through the book of Habakkuk. It's uh, a small book. It's called One of the Minor Prophets because of the size of the book, not the importance of the content. And if you're having a difficult time finding it, there's a couple things you do. If you have the Version app, just go to the event section. You can follow along. Or just find the book of Matthew and start flipping backwards. And, and Habakkuk is five books before the book of Matthew. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. We pray for your spirit to guide us through your word. We pray, Lord, for our willingness to trust you through the trials of life and indeed uh, for Christ to be the cornerstone of our lives, Lord. Through every trial, through every sickness, through everything that goes on, Lord, we pray uh, that we indeed hold on to him. So may you guide us through this time. We pray these things in your son's most holy name. So just for a, a way of quick review from the book of Habakkuk. We started the series with uh, Habakkuk asking the Lord a question, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, where it says, how long, O Yahweh, will you call, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. You see, God's law was being ignored among the people of Judah and among the kings of Judah, and the leaders were being selfish. The people were living in a great amount of sin. Uh, they had fallen back into the same sins of the people of Israel, and, and Habakkuk was crying out to God, asking God, what, what are you going to do? And really, he answers the question. He says, well, it seems to me, Lord, is that you do not hear and you do not save. And the prophet wanted to know why God was being so inactive. And, and God does answer Habakkuk with an alarming answer. Verse 5 of chapter 1. See among the nations and look, be, a, be also astonished. Be astounded. Because I am doing something in your days, you would not believe if it was recounted to you. That something that Yahweh was doing was raising up the Babylonians. They would come into Judah and they would bring about a swift and a severe judgment on the people of Judah. It wasn't yet taking place, but Habakkuk was able to get a glimpse of that. And, and here's why. The reason why they had broken their covenant with Yahweh. They had failed to listen to the warnings of the prophets. They had fallen deep into idol worship, and God was going to keep his word even when the people of Judah would not keep their word. I think that's one of the aspects about God that we always have to put in the back of our minds. God is faithful. He's going to keep his word. This confused Habakkuk, and, and before he approached God with another question, he started with what he knew about God, verse 12 of chapter 1. Are, are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Yahweh, have placed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to reprove. But Yahweh, why them? Now, why would you bring this sinful group of people to come and judge us? Their sin is much greater than ours. They are wicked. And however, Habakkuk understood and knew that God had made a decision, and he was going to follow through on that decision. The prophet had a choice to make at this point. And the one choice the prophet could make with Yahweh is that he could become angry with him. 
He could have declared that Yahweh was unjust and unloving for doing such a thing. Uh, There are many who do this, right? Many who question the goodness of God. And and you might run into some of those people who question the goodness of God. I mean, how could a good God allow some of the bad things to happen? That's one of the questions that takes place. How could a good God allow such sin to take place in the world? But here's the aspect of that that we sometimes fail to see. When that good God does bring his judgment upon the world, whether that be through catastrophe or pestilence, or through war, those same people question the goodness of God. How could a good God do that? It's one of those aspects that we see. It's a vicious circle. God, you have to do something about this wicked people. Okay, here's a war. God, why is there war? God, you have to do something about the sin in this world. Okay, here's pestilence. God, why is there sickness in the world? God, you have to do something about what's going on. Okay, here's a tsunami. God, why are there tsunamis in the world? See, we often fail to see God's goodness and his judgment, but God is good all the time. How could we have, he could have continued to plead with Yahweh. Yahweh, is there any other way? Yahweh, could you send just another great king to lead revival? Could could you send uh, something to take place so we would realize our sin and to turn back to you? But he knew. He knew God is faithful, and God had already declared that there was going to be judgment. He did. And he is eternal, he's holy, and he's God, and he's good. And so Habakkuk had a decision to make, and that decision that he had to make was that he would ultimately find himself praising God in the midst of a deep, personal, and and, and national struggle among his people. But how? How would he get to that point? That's what I want to answer this morning from Habakkuk chapter 3. And the first thing we're going to see in Habakkuk chapter 3 is this, is the prophet prays. He prays. Habakkuk 3.1, a, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the uh, Shagianoth. In case there would be any confusion about those who would read this account later, remember, last week we focused on the fact where God said, listen, I want you to write this down, and I want you to run with it. I want you to take it to people and tell them. And so not only would he tell them, he did write his encounter with God down. And a fitting place for him to begin uh, was a place of prayer. Remember, this is what he's already done. I've cried out to you. I've called to you. You have not heard. You have not saved, Lord, but you have answered. I really don't like your answer, though. I really don't like what you have to say, God. I don't like what's there. And at first reading of this text, I was wondering what the Shagianoth was. Anybody else wonder what Shagianoth was? At first, I thought Shagianoth must have been a person, but actually... I'm doing a little research. Shagianoth was actually a a prayer, a a type of prayer that would be offered up in the temple along with music that would be done with great emotion. And and so there's one writer that said that this this prayer would become a normal part of the people of Israel's uh, worship when they would return, uh, that they would focus in on this. Let's look at Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, and his prayer specifically. Oh, Yahweh, I have heard the report about you, and I fear O Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Enrage, remember compassion. When we think about this, the prophet is in the midst of an absolute dilemma. Yahweh has declared that judgment was rising. He knew before others the extent of that judgment that would soon come upon the people. He's heard the report of God, and listen to what he said. Did you see what he said? And I fear, I fear. And when we think about everything that Habakkuk could have prayed at this point, he didn't pray to Yahweh for deliverance. He didn't pray to Yahweh for a personal escape. He didn't say, all right, God, I know what's coming on these people, but can you get me and my family out of this? No. 
It, it reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've ever heard his story. He was over in, the, in New York. He was teaching at a seminary. Uh, and right before the last ship, he got on the last ship that was able to go, to, go back to Europe. And people were trying to keep him over here in the United States. And, and he said to the people trying to keep him over here, if I'm going to be part of rebuilding the church in Germany, I have to go through the struggle with the church in Germany. Habakkuk knew he had to go through this struggle. God does not ask, he does not ask God to spare Judah. No, he, he, he does not even plead for uh, victory. What he does do is a couple of important things, right? He admits his fear, but then he also dis, does this. The prophet prayed for God's work to be revived. He, he says, oh, Yahweh, revive your work. And the grip of fear, his primary concern, did you see what it was? His primary concern was not for his safety, not for the safety of the people of Judah. His primary concern was the glory of God and God's work continuing among the people and in the world, right? Uh, for the people of Judah, this would have been connected with Yahweh's actions for the sake of keeping the covenant uh, of the people of Israel. And you remember that covenant, right? It's a couple of key areas in the, in the Old Testament that you have to grab a hold of, underline them, circle them, because it helps you understand all of the Bible. And the first one is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God tells Abraham that he's going to bless the entire world through his seed. That's the first promise of that covenant. You continue to follow that through, and in chapter 15, it tells us that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 17, it speaks more of that covenant. And then that covenant passes along through King. David when David wanted to build a house for Yahweh, but God said, no, I'm going to build a house for you and that it will be established forever. That's the covenant promise. And Yahweh did some amazing things to keep his covenant with the people of Israel. We're going to highlight some of those things in, in a moment, uh, but the point we should see is that the prophet is asking God to do the works in the present day that he had done in the past. And since they had not yet been taken captive, this shows his faith in the promise of Yahweh, right? Lord, I, I know we're going to suffer. Lord, I, I know that you're going to take us away from this land. Your word has already promised that. You've already shown me that. Uh, but here, listen, Lord, I, I want your work to be revived. What would have been necessary for Yahweh's work to be revived among the people of Judah? It's one thing. It's repentance. Right, God would do his part if the people of Judah would do their part. And, and this was so entrenched into the thinking of the, the people of Israel that it goes all the way back when Solomon dedicated the temple. He dedicated the temple, and in his prayer, he spoke of this very moment. Second Chronicles chapter 6. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them over to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. And if they cause these things to return to their heart in the land where they have been taken captive, and return and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and have acted wickedly. And if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive, and they pray toward their land, which you have given to their fathers, and the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which we, you, you have built for your, I have built for your name, then listen from heaven, from your dwelling place, to their prayer and supplication, and do justice for them, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. See, Habakkuk is saying, listen, God, remember this. 
As we get there and we understand what we're going to go through, revive your work among us. And that work revived in us will lead us to repentance. And that repentance will restore us to a right place with you. Could it have been that Habakkuk understood that why God was bringing the judgment upon the people of Judah? He knew God's ultimate intent to fulfill his covenant and to return them to a right relationship with God. Friends, when we suffer, when we go through trials, when things are taking place with us as individuals, as a body of believers, as a nation, we have to be willing to ask the question, Lord, why? Is there something in me? Is there something in us? Is there something in our nation that's forsaking your ways? We need your work to revive, Lord, and it starts with your people getting to that point of repentance. Jesus is recorded in the Sermon on the Mount as saying these words, don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink. Your Father will give you all of these things. And, And this extends to us when we think about all the things that we tend to worry about. What are you worrying about today, friends? What's the deep question in your heart? Is it the state of the world? You know, progressivism being forced upon our hearts and minds of, the children, of our children in schools. I mean, Tom spoke to that. We, we agree that we, it's an important issue that we have to speak to. That's right. The constant divide of those who claim to lead us in Washington, the threat of an economy collapsing. Is it the threat of war? You just turn on the news and depending upon who you listen to, uh, they continue to tell us that World War III is just around the corner. Uh, what are you worried about? Is it liberalism invading the church? Is it the threat of the, on the institution of the family? What are you worried about? Is it, is it your health? Is it something going on with you? Right. So are you praying for God's work to be revived even in the midst of all of those situations? Because right. Jesus, when he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, he, he, he says one thing, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Imagine how this world would change if our outlook on the everyday struggles that consume us, that we wouldn't find ourselves caring about the realities of those things as much as we would care about the righteousness of our Father in heaven, about his glory. Imagine how much the world would change if we wouldn't find ourselves as his people less worried about uh, how we're going to respond when everything falls apart and we would find ourselves worrying about, okay, how can we make God look good when things fall apart? How can we consider his kingdom? See, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote these words to the church and he said, this is our responsibility, church. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. Through the church, that's through us, as we seek his righteousness, as we seek to establish his kingdom on this earth. So the prophet prayed for God's work to be revived. And friends, that starts with us. He prays for something else. He he prays for God to remember compassion in his judgment or mercy, right? To remember mercy. Uh, Yahweh, I know that judgment is coming. I know that we deserve this. Yahweh, in your wrath, be merciful. And, And what a prayer of faith that this is, right? God, you're going to destroy Jerusalem. You're going to burn the temple. You're going to take your people away. But even in that, God, remember mercy. Remember mercy. Did God answer his prayer? Did he answer his prayer? Well, we don't know right here in this book, but we do know when we put it together with other sections of Scripture. Specifically, Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, Then those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another. 
And Yahweh gave heed and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear Yahweh and who think upon his name. And like Habakkuk, Malachi had been declaring the coming judgment. Those who feared Yahweh understood that coming judgment, and they started to share their concerns with one another. When they got together, they shared their concerns, and I would imagine that they prayed with one another. And Yahweh hears their concerns, and he says, I have book of remembrance. And what was written in that book of remembrance? Verses 17 and 18. And they will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts. On that day, I prepare my own treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will return and see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God saved a remnant among them. And just 70 years after he would capture them and take them to Babylon, God would begin to send that remnant back into Jerusalem. And it started with Zerubbabel when he would return and he would build the temple. Go to the book of Ezra and read that. It continued through Nehemiah when Nehemiah returned and he built a wall around Jerusalem. Just go to the book of Nehemiah and read about that. You see, God was faithful. God indeed remembered his mercy through the judgment. Have you ever found yourself asking the Lord for mercy? Compassion? And then ever realize what's needed? I mean, what makes mercy necessary? What is it that makes mercy necessary? It's judgment. It's when you've placed yourself in a position to be under the wrath or the judgment of God that it's at that point that mercy and compassion are fully seen. And our problem is, our problem is often is that we often have a difficult time remembering when God has shown us mercy in the past. We often have a difficult time with remembering how God, when he could have punished severely, he's given us an opportunity that we didn't deserve. The writer of Hebrews informs his readers about those whom God chastises. I read more of the passage before our service, but verses 5 and 6 one more time. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. Friends, if the Lord is taking you through a time of correction right now, You have to see that as a point of God's love. And you have to understand that even through that point of judgment, there's a great amount of mercy and compassion that the Lord has bestowed upon you because he's given you an opportunity to pray for his works to be revived in your own soul, for you to once again seek his righteousness and his kingdom above all things. So Habakkuk prayed. Do we start with prayer before we get to praise? The next thing Habakkuk does is the prophet ponders. Look at verses 3 and 4. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brightness is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his strength. Does anyone else have a difficult time with poetic language of the Old Testament? Man, I have a difficult time. I'm just going to make a confession to you right now. I'm not the biggest fan of the book of Psalms. You know, I struggle through the reading of the Psalms every year. Uh, but with this passage right here, I, I was able to do some study. And, and now that I see what the prophet is doing, this is some of the most beautiful wording that we could ever grab a hold of from this book. The first thing Habakkuk does is he describes a theophany, a vision of Yahweh in the Old Testament. 
And he's painting a picture of what he sees in this theophany. And within this picture, there's the great reminder of what Yahweh has done in the past. And it begins with coming from Taman and the Mount of Paran. And it's a picture of what took place at Mount Sinai when God began to work with the people of Israel through Moses and the flashing rays of light coming from his hand is the law that he was giving to them. And as you work yourself through verses 5 through 15, there are pictures of what God has already done. I'm not going to read those verses for us this morning, but I want to give you the pictures. In verse 5, he's referring to the plagues of Egypt, and he moves on to remember the tents of Kishon and the under wickedness and the people of Midian trembling because they would be going through the same things the people of Israel would. In verse 9, he sees Yahweh with his bow made ready for war. And whatever enemy there was, God is ready, God is vigilant, and he will conquer. Verse 10 uh, paints to a picture that Yahweh holding back the waters for the people of Israel to cross the Red Sea. In verse 11, it points to Joshua chapter 10 when Yahweh made the sun stand still for Joshua so he could defeat an enemy. Right, in verses 12 through 15, we get a picture of the list of ways that Yahweh has defeated his foes. And the picture that Habakkuk is seeking to paint for us today and for the reader then is that God is faithful. He's faithful. There may be fear in his heart because of what is coming, but there's faith in the midst of fear. Why? Because Yahweh has already done so much to keep his covenant with the people of Israel. And he knows, remember, we talked about this last week. Oh, Yahweh, we will not die. You're going to keep your word. We're going to trust you. The key for us today is to have the same kind of faith. It's to have the same kind of faith. To look back on what God has already done for us and just to, so we can have a clear picture of what God has already done for us. Think about it in the terms of when we were at our worst. Right? What has God done for us when we were at our worst? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we were saved while we were sinners. Right? God didn't save us when we did good things. God didn't save us when we were this perfect picture of morality. You know, God saved us when we were sinners and we were wicked and we were away from him. And if God saved us there, how much more? That's what these verses declare, right? Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by, saved by, we shall be saved by uh, his life. And not only this, but also we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You see, friends, we can praise God through the current trials because we have the truth of what he's done for us in the past. He saved us when we were at our worst. And, and if that's not enough, if that's not enough, just keep going through Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man. That verse should be an anthem for every follower of Christ in the midst of every struggle that we walk through. Because the truth is, is most of the struggles we walk through, we willingly take ourselves into those struggles with decisions that we make, right? And he's already given us the promise that if he saved us when we were not followers of his, how much more? How much more? And we focused last week on that fact and that promise, right? That if we're faithful to confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And he tells us here there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If that's not enough, he tells us that he's given us his spirit that we can put to death the misdeeds of the body. Those are those next verses. I'm not going to read them. 
And if that's not enough, we're promised that nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. I won't read the verses. Tom will just scroll through them. But look at the promises of God's word. They're there for us. He's already determined what he's going to do for those that are in Christ Jesus. And and so when we find ourselves in the midst of all of the struggles that we can find ourselves in, there's where we need to ponder. We need to think back, man, God saved me when I was at my worst. God sealed me with his Holy Spirit. He's told me there's no condemnation when I remain in Christ. He's also promised that there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That is worth thinking on, and more importantly, that's worth standing on in faith. That's where we need to anchor our souls to, right? And we think back through that. I mean, what prayer has God answered already? How has he brought you to the place where you are today? See, friends, God has been faithful. And like the prophet Habakkuk, if we're going to find ourselves at a point of praise, we've got to remember what he's taken us through and remember what he's promised that he's taken carrying us. So we, the last couple of weeks we've taken, well, first we took Dom and then we took Dom and, and Tate to the beach in Apple Valley. There's three beaches in Apple Valley. And, and, and so these it's just little small things. And I'm sure to an eye of a two-year-old and a three-year-old, these things are, are kind of gigantic. And uh, so Dom really enjoys when the ski boats or the ski-doos go by because they create waves. And for a little three-year-old body, those waves are kind of big, right? They've enough to begin to knock him over by the time they'd reach up. And uh, the first few times that happened, he would look back and to see if I was standing right there with him. And I was. And then it got me thinking about the first time that I had seen the ocean. Uh, and so uh, actually, this, the first time I saw the ocean was the first time CJ saw the ocean. We were going on a family vacation, and Preston was with Roy and Melinda on this vacation. They were going down to see family. But, so April and I and CJ, we rode the A1A. Anybody else ever ride the A1A? So, and we had just seen the ocean the day before, and we got to a place just south of Jacksonville around New Smyrna, and we looked over, and there was a beach. And we said, well, let's stop at the beach. And CJ wanted to get in the water. And, and I, as a parent, you know, you need to say yes more than you say no, especially when things are, are like that. And I didn't know much about the ocean. Um, I did know it looked rough, right? And, and so we got in the ocean. I got up in about thigh deep, and CJ was probably about this tall at that point. And, and as the waves were coming in from where I'm at to where the back of the wall is there, the, I'm not exaggerating when I say the waves were at the top of the window there. And I thought, well, this is the ocean. It must be normal, right? So, uh, so then those waves came in, and by the time they got in, the waves were here. And so you imagine little CJ's body. I grabbed a hold of his hands, and he was just a little kid at that point. And, and as that wave was coming in, I looked at him and said, hey, CJ, this is a hold on to daddy wave. So he grabbed both of my hands, and then his body would be raised up with that wave, and I'd get pushed back. And, and then we'd laugh, and then he'd look out and see another wave. And, hey, hey, dad, this is a hold on to daddy wave. And so he grabbed my hands, and he'd wave, and we'd just go back and, uh, and back and forth. And it's, a, it's one of those mental pictures that I'll never let go in my mind. I couldn't find the picture to put it up for you. I looked for it because April took a picture of that moment. Because it really got me thinking, man, much of our problems in life are similar. That if we'll just ponder and think of what God has already done for us and how he's taken us through those hold on to daddy waves in the past, that if we'll just trust him and hold on to his hands through the struggles, we'll see every struggle in life as a hold on to our Father in heaven wave. God is faithful. We need to ponder those moments and look back to that point. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, 
and I will never forsake you. So the prophet prayed, the prophet pondered, and that put him to this final point where the prophet praises. But before we get to the point of his praise, he is honest with Yahweh, and he once again mentions fear, right? He's already said once, I'm afraid, and now look at verse 16. I heard, and my onward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips tingled. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. The simplicity of this confession is amazing. The entire chapter, many say, is a prayer, right? They they say, but the prophet has poured out his heart before Yahweh. And not only in this chapter, but what was recorded in the entire book. And Lord, I've cried. You have not heard. You have not saved. Lord, you've answered. I don't really like your answer. But I, for the sake of your glory, I'm going to trust you. Lord, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You know, one of the things that angers me about some of the theological conversations that take place among people is when people say that fear really shows a lack of faith. I guess at times there's a reality that that can be the case. But there are other times that we just got to be honest with our Father in heaven like the prophet here was. And say, Lord, I know it's coming, but I'm afraid. And why would Habakkuk be afraid? Well, he was going to lose his home. He was going to lose his family. He was going to lose his nation. He was going to lose his way of life. Many were going to suffer and die at the hands of the wicked Babylonians. How could he not be afraid? How could he not be afraid of what's coming? His fear wasn't, God, I don't trust you. It's, it's God, I, I really don't like what's about to take place. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And when you put that together with the vision of the Lord's work among the people, especially the work of judgment, I think many of us would find ourselves in the similar position that Habakkuk did right here. Friends, I must tell you, when I look around our world today, I'm afraid. I am. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of a prison cell. I don't want to go to prison for preaching God's word and refusing to perform same-sex weddings but it could happen. I'm afraid of the suffering that we'll endure when the economy collapses, but it's coming. I'm afraid of lives that will be lost when wars are fought. And as I've told you before, when I've had the opportunity to coach young men in football, I've understood the the trajectory of human history and we're always marching toward the next war. And in moments of quietness, I would always pray for those young men, Lord, if these are the young men that have to fight the next war, be with them. I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my grandkids to go into public classrooms, not because of the many great public school teachers that we have, but because of the doctrines that are going to be forced into their heads and hearts. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of these things. I'm afraid for churches to continue to decline in attendance and and for followers of Christ to be marginalized and to fail to submit themselves to God's word completely. This is what's taking place in our world and it, it brings fear into my heart. And there are many times that I talk with God the same way, Lord, I'm afraid. I don't, I don't like what's coming and I don't like what I see. But here's what I know, along with the prophet Habakkuk, that even in my fear, God's going to be faithful. Even in my fear, God's going to keep his word. 
And, and even if all of those bad things that I fear could happen and maybe will happen, that's my thought process, Jesus will raise me up on the final day. Jesus will raise his church up on the final day. There's nothing, there's nothing that can happen to me to separate me from his love. So even in my fear, there's hope. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus recorded in Matthew. Chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, here's one of those much more statements. How much more? The members of his household. And look at these next words. Verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Don't fear the politicians in Washington. Don't fear the ones who are trying to dilute God's word in the church. Don't fear the progressives who seem to be winning the battle. Don't fear the diagnosis that seems like there's no hope. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and and hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like seeking his righteousness and the advancement of his kingdom? Right? Doesn't that sound an awful lot alike what, what God told the prophet last week? What I tell you right now, you take it and you run and tell other people about it. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. The Bible declares this, give knowledge to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Make a righteous man know it and he will increase his learning. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Friends, what fears do you have today? Have you applied these verses to those fears? Have you confessed what's keeping you up at night to the Lord? Father, I I know you have my best interest in mind. I I know that nothing can separate me from your love. I know that you'll raise me up on the last day, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of what the chemo will do. I'm afraid that my heart will stop with no warning. I'm afraid that the job will no longer be here. I'm afraid that my child will never come back. I'm afraid that your church is going to disappear, Lord. I'm afraid. And then remember the promises of God's word. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He'll raise you up on the last day. One of the most beautiful promises in God's words found in a little verse that Jesus quoted from Isaiah. And it's one that I think that we should take to heart. And he says, a battered reed, he will not break off. And a smoldering wick, he will not put out. You see, God's big enough for our fear. He's big enough for our pondering and our questions. He's big enough for us to pray in a reality to God and says, God, I know what you're doing, but man, I I don't know if I like it, but I'm going to trust you. Allow your fear to drive you to the Lord, and when you do, you'll find yourself in the same position that Habakkuk did. Look at verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no produce on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the field, and there be no cattle in the stalls, The elements used in this verse are progressive in nature. And they start off by taking the people who they're spoken about to just complete desolation and starvation. That's where it finally ends at. 
right? And the prophet is saying, Lord, even if all of these things happen, friends, I know I've shared this idea before, but the question pops up here as well. And we've got to ask this question, is Jesus enough for us? I mean, do we pray to the Lord that same way, Lord, if, if the job goes away, if my spouse leaves, or if the sickness will not be healed, or if the culture changes, or when my freedoms are taken away, or when the country collapses, or, or, or God forbid, even if this church one day should close its doors, do we even say then? Even through all of those things, Lord. Verse 18, yet I will exalt in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This is surrender. This is faith. And this is trust. I'm reminded of a friend of mine in, in Pennsylvania named Brian. Brian's about 38 years old. I think I'm guessing his age, right? He has a young teenage daughter, single father, has custody of her. And Brian, about six or seven years ago, I believe, uh, he, he had cancer diagnosed for the first time. And while I was in Pennsylvania, he, he started having pain in his lower back. And, and so he went and got a scan, and that scan showed that he had a, had a tumor uh, around his sciatic nerve. And so then he had to go get that tumor cut out and biopsied. And, and he just went through agony after that. He, there were, he had to have like long periods of time where he laid on his stomach and, and just in, in great pain. And then the, the, the diagnosis came back the first time uh, that it was cancer and that it was an aggressive cancer and that uh, the number of 10 years of living was given to him. And, and they asked him if he wanted to have the option of having chemotherapy, but they told him, listen, we got all the cancer this time. And so he chose not to get chemotherapy. Somewhere between nine months to 12 months later, Brian went back in for another scan and there was another tumor. In our men's group that met at 6, 30, 6 o'clock on Sunday mornings, there was a group of about six to eight of us that would meet weekly. Brian came in that week, uh, and we asked him, hey, man, did you get the results of your biopsy? And he said, yeah, I did. And I'll never forget what he said next. Praise God. It's cancer. I remember thinking, man, how could you? How could you? And it reminds me of a truth that we have to grab a hold of as followers of Christ. We have to understand that God is good all the time. He's not just good when prayers are answered. He's good all the time. He's not good when healing takes place. He's good when healing evades. He's not good when the job, uh, you get the job, but he's also good when you have a difficult time paying the bills. He's not good when a nation is blessed, but even when a nation is going through judgment. He's not good when there's peace in your relationships. He's good even if you find yourself alone. Friends, God is good all the time, and he can be exalted even in the midst of great storms. And Habakkuk gives us that truth. Verse 19. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength, and he has set my feet like hind's feet, and he makes me tread on my high places. Yahweh, he's my strength, and the picture that he paints here is just this one picture. He'll lift me up. He will lift me up. He will lift me up. He will lift me up. Do we live with that kind of faith today? That kind of faith that says God will lift me up. He's made that promise. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to fear the one that can destroy the body, but I'm going to fear in a positive way and trust the one who gives me my salvation. So no matter what, I'm going to exalt in him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. So that we confidently say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And what a powerful picture this prophet has painted for us. The past three weeks, we've walked with him through the agonizing fears. And he ends in a point of powerful praise that each of us should end into. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the love and grace you give us in Jesus Christ and the opportunity that we have to be here today to worship you. We thank you, Lord, that that Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives. We praise you, Lord, that in him there's victory. But even in the midst of the struggles that we endure, even in the midst of the fears that we have and and the trials that take place in the world, uh, that, God, we can begin to come to that point of praise, that we can ponder We can seek your kingdom and your righteousness. We can remember what you've done for us in the past. We can know and lean into the promises of your word. Uh, Lord, we can know that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can know those things confidently and that we can profess and praise you to be the Lord even in the most horrible situations. So God, I pray for the follower of Christ in the room this morning that that's our prayer, that we learn from him, the prophet, Seek to emulate him in our lives because it leads us to a point of trust and praise for you no matter what. And so God, for the soul in the room this morning that's yet to make that decision to make Christ the Lord of their lives, may the day, today be that day. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure maybe who's in the room 100%. Sometimes I think we assume that everybody's already made a decision for the Lord and, and there's no re-decisions that need to be made. But maybe as we stand and sing our song of invitation in a few moments, there might be some work that you need to do with the Lord. Maybe a confession of sin or a point of repentance or a renewal of faith, whatever that may be. You can do that where you're at if you've already made a decision to follow Christ. But maybe you're in the room or maybe somebody might watch this because people watch this later that they've not made a decision for the Lord yet and primarily because of all the junky stuff that's happened in life. And and let me promise right now that the Bible declares that when we put our faith and trust in God, he seals us with his Holy Spirit and all of these promises that we spoke about become true then. They become true then. And so start with that point of faith in God, confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, repent of your sins, submit yourself to Christian baptism, allow him to seal you. And then from that point on, all of these things that we spoke about today will take on a new meaning. If that's a decision you need to make or you want to talk about, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. Let's meet down here in front together and do that. Let's stand together.